Hey church, wanna welcome you to Church Online. I'm really glad that you're joining us. Uh, We're starting a new series today uh, called Summer of Love. We're gonna be in this uh, series uh, throughout the rest of the summer. So I'm really glad that you're joining us for week one. I do wanna ask something of you before we get into this new series. I wanna ask you uh, to be praying for our leadership team. We're aware of uh, some things that our governor has recently said about recommendations and, and uh, the things the CDC has said recently. And so we're gonna be meeting on Tuesday night uh, to discuss those things. And uh, I would encourage you to uh, make sure to look at, at our social media page and our website uh, for any upcoming announcements about when we will be back uh, to weekly gatherings. We're, we think it's gonna be sooner uh, rather than later. So we're uh, eagerly expecting uh, to be able to make an announcement relatively soon. So uh, be praying for us on Tuesday night uh, at 6 p.m. We would really appreciate uh, your prayers. We want to invite the Spirit to guide us in wisdom and grace and knowledge to know what to do and to know when to do it. So please be praying for us. All right, before we get into this series, I want to go ahead and pray, and then we'll, and then we'll uh, start Summer of Love. All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the day. We thank you so much for Jesus and the love and the grace that he shows us. It's because of his love that we even know what love is. So help us to receive his love, to walk in his love, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. We live in a culture uh, that loves to use the word love. Uh, We have a preoccupation with the word love. Think about the different ways that you have used the word love just this week. You may have had uh, some Rocky Road ice cream that tasted really, really good, and you may have said, man, I love this ice cream. You may have watched a great show or a great series on Netflix, and at the end of it, you said, man, I love this show. You may have watched uh, an old game of your favorite sports team. Cheryl and I have done that a couple times over break and said, oh, man, I remember that team. I love that team. You may put your kids to bed, and right before you put them to bed, you say, man, I love you so much. You may have come home from the end of a long day at work and said to your spouse, I love you. You may have gone for a long walk, and at the end of the walk said, man, that was a great walk. I loved it. And I suppose the question becomes, how are we all not walking around super confused about this word? It's like, wait, you're telling me you feel the same way about your kids that you do that show on Netflix? Or you feel the same way about that long walk as you do about your spouse? Or you feel the the same way about Rocky Road as you do about your family? Well, no, at least I hope the, the answer to that is no. We understand that the word love comes with it context and relationship. And so we have just understood in English that there is a lot of nuance to this word and it can be used in a lot of of different ways. We understand that you don't feel about Rocky Road the same way you feel about your kids, that you don't feel about that long walk the same way that you do about your spouse. There's nuance, there's relationship, and there's context. The sermon series we're starting today, Summer of Love, it is all about this subject of love. And what we're gonna do in this series for the next several weeks is we're gonna search the scriptures on the word love. And we're gonna study a wide variety of authors uh, in, in the Bible and what each of those authors had to say on the subject of love. And I've said this a couple times, but allow me to say it one more time, is I think when we were planning this series six months ago, that the Holy Spirit was ahead of us and knew that at this time and in this moment, we needed to study the subject of love coming out of a pandemic. 
uh, some of the racial discord going on in Minnesota right now, the way that we're divided in philosophy and politics, right uh, at the beginning of what is sure to be a contentious cycle, uh, a contentious election cycle, uh, a, a contentious election cycle. I believe we really need this series. And we need to ask, how do we love? What does it look like? And how can we do better? I believe our culture, I believe the big C church, the, the, the national church, I think we can do better. So we wanna start in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for love that is used most often uh, in the Old Testament, you could, you could def- define it and describe it this way. It is to love, desire, delight, to be fond of, to covet, and, uh, and amiable. It implies an ardent and vehement inclination of the mind and a tenderness of affection at the same time. So don't miss that. That first of all, when the Hebrew uh, defines the word love, it does describe it and define it as a feeling. This is that moment that you look at someone or you first become friends with someone and there's this immediate affection, this immediate connection. That is a type of love, the feeling of love where, where there's just that affection for a, a thing or a person or a relationship. That, that is love. But there is also, you notice in the definition, an ardent and vehement inclination of the mind to love that we as human beings, we are given this opportunity to tell our mind, I am going to love this person. This is what makes human beings different than all of creation, that an animal will see someone it doesn't like or someone it's suspicious of, and an animal will go into fight and destroy mode. It is natural instinct. But we are not a lion, and we are not a dog. We are human beings, and we have the ability to tell our mind that we are going to choose to love. I think this is something that our culture needs to see modeled right now. It is the lost art of choosing to love. What might, what might it look like? The big, big, biggest question I sometimes get is how on earth am I supposed to love an enemy or to love someone who's wronged me, or to love someone who has hurt me, to love someone who's dangerous to me. And Jesus said one time, he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? Someone who persecute you, persecutes you, you're not going to feel that emotion of love, that, that feeling of love. If someone's persecuting you, you're not going to feel that. You're not going to want to spend a bunch of time with them, but you can still choose to love. And Jesus teaches us how. He says, pray for them, right? This allows for proper distancing and proper safety, but it allows you to demonstrate love toward a person that might be dangerous or even someone that you really don't know that well. So things were loved in the Old Testament. There's a whole long list of things that were loved in the Old Testament, but by and large, this Hebrew word is a relational word. It describes how we love in the context of relationships. So this Hebrew word for love we're discussing today, sometimes it is used to describe the relationship between a parent and a child. 
So I've talked to you about this before, but we sometimes talk about the law of first mention, that many times uh, what you wanna do when you're studying the Bible is you wanna go back and you wanna see the first mention of a word or the first mention of an idea. Sometimes if you're studying a list, the first mention will be the most important mention. So in the New Testament, we are taught that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The first mention in that list is love. And so love is the first fruit of the Spirit, and all uh, the rest of the fruit of the Spirit flow from an attitude of love. The first mention of the Hebrew word for love that we're studying today is found in Genesis 22. Now let me set it up. Back in Genesis 12, God called Abraham to leave his country, his family, and his father's household, and he said, go to a land I will show you. I'm gonna establish you into a family and eventually a nation, and that family and that nation are gonna bring about blessing to the entire world. And the problem with this plan was that Abraham and his wife Sarah didn't have any children. And they wait and they wait and they wait. If God's gonna build a family and eventually a nation, you've gotta have heirs, you gotta have children, and they didn't have any. So at one point in the story, they try to force it and it doesn't go particularly well, and God calls them to wait. And then finally, Abraham and Sarah give birth to a son named Isaac when they are 100 years old. And you can only imagine how they must have loved Isaac the long-awaited child. My wife and I understand a little bit about waiting for children. Part of the adoption process, we've adopted both of our kids, part of the adoption process is to wait. And when our kids were born, after years of trying to figure out how to build our family, uh, we, our extended family, our friends, our church family, we all kind of lost our minds with joy and excitement because the wait was finally done. And if you're a parent, you understand this type of parental love, this fierce protective love that kicks in when you bring your kids home. And sometimes this love can take on almost an unhealthy tone. It's actually something we want to guard against. And what I mean by that is you don't want to love your children so much that you just give them whatever they want. You don't want to love your children so much that the entire world and family revolves around them. You want to love them enough to discipline them. Yes, that's a type of love and to teach them and point them in the right direction. And Abraham and Sarah love Isaac so much. And so you can imagine the fear, the anxiety, and the sense of mourning when God comes and tests Abraham's faith and devotion. And remember, before I read the text, this is a test. God never intends for Abraham to actually sacrifice his son. As a matter of fact, as you read the story, God sends an angel to stop Abraham from sacrificing his son. It's only a, a test, but this is the first use of this Hebrew word, love. And then, it said, then God said, in, in Genesis uh, 22, two, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. There it is. The first use of the word love. And it's meant to conjure up this sense in us of parental love that we understand. If you're a parent, you understand the angst and the anguish that Abraham must have felt because of how much he loved Isaac but it is also meant to conjure up in our memory another verse, a New Testament verse, that John 3, 16, that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but receive eternal life. And certainly this is not a simple story. John 3.16 isn't a simple story of a father sacrificing a son. Jesus is a willing participant in the rescue and redemption of mankind. But the, 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 the Trinity engages in this storyline to rescue and redeem us. That our sin was affecting our relationship with God. Our sin was affecting our eternity. And so God so loved the world that he gave us his son that he loved. And the son willingly engaged in this mission to rescue and redeem us because the son loved us as well. So this is the first use of, of this word love is this kind of parental love. Uh, that, that, that God has for us, uh, th- that John 3.16 teaches that God has for us and that God has for his own son, Jesus. In Ruth 4, this same word is used to describe a type of love that is formed through marriage. So in Ruth, at the beginning of the story, we meet, we meet Naomi and her husband and their two boys and their two wives. And over the course of the first chapter of, of Ruth, all the men in the family pass away, and the women in the story have an important decision to make because they would be within their rights to separate from their family and go find themselves a kinsman redeemer to step in and be their husband. And Ruth, it says, loved her mother-in-law, and Ruth decides not to disengage from the family, but instead to stay with her mother-in-law because she loved her so much. And over time, Ruth ends up finding a husband anyway. And let me show you what happens next. Uh, Ruth 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. You might remember your wedding day and you remember the promises that you made to your uh, spouse that you were marrying, the, the, the promises to love them uh, deeply and to love them the way that God uh, loves them. And what you probably didn't know on your wedding day was all the other family members that you were going to end up loving. And that's what this text is describing. It is the relationships in a family that develop, uh, that develop love as the result of marriage. And one of the great ways that the New Testament describes our relationship with God is family language, that God is described as our father. Jesus is described as a groom. The church is described as a bride. This family language affects the way that we love one another. Our mission statement at Northwest is that we are a growing family, journeying together to be more like Jesus. And it may have thrown you off the first time you started attending a church. That, uh, we don't do this as much today, but years ago, you'd go to a church and people kind of refer to themselves as brother and sister. Like, this is weird. This is odd. It's just describing the spiritual family that we have in Christ, that God is our father and, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. We are a spiritual family. So it affects the way that we love one another, but it also I want us to consider the way that Jesus loves his family. That Jesus was willing to give up his life for his family, for his bride, so that we could know God, we could worship God, and we could come into the relationship with God that we were created to have. So love in the Old Testament, it is described as a family that forms through marriage. The last way it's described is it describes friendship. 
So let me try to set up this text a little bit, that Saul is the current king of Israel, but David's going to be the future king, and there's a ton of jealousy and animosity from Saul to David. And at one point, Saul actually tries to kill David while David is playing some music for him. And Saul's son, Jonathan, and David become really good friends, kind of an odd friendship, but they become really good friends. And in 1 Samuel 18, we read these words. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. There's our word. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Our culture finds the idea of friendship fascinating. You think about all the TV shows that revolve around friendship. My eight-year-old and two-year-old. My eight-year-old, he loves this series of books and, and television show called Captain Underpants. And really the basis of the show, it is a storyline about two young boys that become friends. My daughter loves a show called My Little Pony, and it's all about this pony who studies friendship. And from a very early age, we try to get kids understand, uh, to get them to understand not just having good friends, although that's important, but we try to get them to understand being good friends. And the truth is we have, uh, we have a really good friend with us, spiritually, and his name is Jesus. Here's what it says in John 15, Jesus' words. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends for everything that I learned from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask for in my Father's name, I will give to you. This is my command, love one another. And this is how love is used throughout the Old Testament. It describes parental love. It describes the love of a family that is formed through marriage. And it's used to describe friendship. And as you study the rest of the Bible, these types of love will find their perfect example in God. So we see, as I mentioned before, that God is described in the Bible in very parental ways. He is our father. Jesus is the son. We are his children. And can I tell you something about your God? He is the perfect parent. He loves us in ways that we sometimes forget. He provides and encourages. At times he disciplines, he leads. Jesus is described as the groom and the church is the bride. And Jesus, we learn, is the perfect groom. He lays down his life for the bride. He loves the bride so much. He loves his extended family so much. And even in friendship, we see this image of that through Jesus, God is described as our friend and he is the perfect friend. So one of the lessons from the biblical authors is that we can learn what love looks like in each of these categories, you know, marriage, family, friendship. We can learn what love looks like and what love is from God. 
And you see this in the Old and the New Testaments, but in the New Testament in particular, one author really grabs hold of this idea. We're gonna study it later in the series, but let me read it to you now. 1 John 4, 7, uh, 7 through 11, and then 16. Dear friends, let us love one another. Great advice for our time today. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God. That's not, that, that's not the totality of love but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And then verse 16, and, we, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is, I find it so interesting that it is John that really drives this point home about we learn what love is from God and, and we learn what God, love is from Jesus. Because of the, the, of the 12 disciples, Jesus had this kind of inner circle of friends and one of Jesus' best friends turns out to be John. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is on the cross and he's looking for someone to care for his mother, it is John that he chooses. And so they have this very loving, loving relationship. And so John had experienced the love of Jesus in kind of an interesting and unique way. They, they were really good friends. And, and so he sees in Jesus this powerful example of love, not, not just an example that we can see, although we do see in Jesus' love, but an example that we can imitate. So the Bible would teach this, in your marriage, Please love your spouse the way Jesus loves his spouse. Maybe this has been a frustrating season for you and your spouse. You don't feel like your spouse has been carrying their weight in the home or you've just been arguing more than usual. First of all, I want you to remember to show yourself some grace, right? The last two, three months have been very stressful and sometimes the best side of us doesn't come out when we're stressed. But I also want to encourage you to show some grace to your spouse, Right? That, that uh, this is overwhelmingly how Jesus loves his bride. Again and again and again, we see that Jesus sacrifices himself to show grace, to forgive sin, and to give of himself. So in our marriage, we love the way Jesus has loved us. In your family and in your friendships, love them the way Jesus loves his family and his friends. And sometimes it's easy to love your family, and sometimes it's challenging because people are people. And so we want to be reminded that, yes, love is an emotion, but love is also a choice because this is so relevant to the days that we're living in. The question becomes, how do you love a family member that is maybe posting political opinion that's different than yours? How do you uh, love a family member that is posting attacks on the president or support on the president, attacks on Congress, support for Congress, COVID-19 conspiracies, and it just kind of drives you nuts. The conversation drives you nuts. How do you love in that moment? How do you handle this issue? I want to be reminded of what the Apostle Paul said. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not easily angered. I'll tell you something, church. 
the last two weeks that I have been preached on fear, I almost want to apologize for those sermons because I felt like those sermons were irrelevant to where we were. I commented to Cheryl one day, I said, I should be preaching on anger because I feel like at some point in the last three weeks, the storyline of COVID-19 changed from fear and anxiety to anger and angst. That our culture, all of a sudden, it just seemed to turn around and we're agitated and we're upset and we're frustrated. And some of it is that this has turned political And politics is by its nature adversarial. Politics by its nature uh, encourages anger and uh, animosity. Politics encourages winning as as the chief strategy. And this is why politics, politics makes for an interesting hobby, but a terrible God. See, politics are the solution for political problems. But politics will only increase relational problems. So we want to learn about love from Jesus. We want to learn about love from God. And we want to love in our marriage the way Jesus loves his bride. We want to love in our families the way Jesus loves his family. We want to love in our friendships the way that Jesus loves in his friendships. And we want to love our enemies the way that Jesus loves his enemies. So please, 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 Make sure during this time, this next season of life, make sure Jesus is your God, that you are worshiping him, that he is leading you. And here's the truth. Jesus is love. He is. And he will always lead you to love. Jesus is love. And he will always lead you to love. And this is a time in our culture when we could really use this example. Church, The next six months are pivotal. We have to learn how to do this and we have to learn how to do it well. We have to learn to love. We have to learn to love people we disagree with. We have to learn to love people from a different political party. We have to learn to love people with a different uh, point of view. It's hard and it requires grind and it requires thought and it requires training our mind to say, I am going to love this person. My heart's not feeling it, but I'm commanding my mind to find a way to love. It's going to require all of that, but it is so worth the process. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you so much for his love. May we love the way he loves May we show grace the way he shows grace. And may we uh, serve the way that he serves. Uh, You have given us through Jesus Christ grace upon grace upon grace. May we receive it and then demonstrate it to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And this is a great time if you're participating in at-home communion. It is a great time to remember this grace, to remember this love that we receive it and then we show it. So right now we're receiving his grace through communion. The bread uh, reminds us of Jesus' body. The juice reminds us of his blood. We receive it, and then we are committed to showing it. And so my prayer for us, as, as life is starting to ramp back up again a little bit, my prayer for us is that we would leave this quarantine, leave this shelter at home, Uh, season, and we would leave ready to love in a radical and different way. I love you. I do. I love you so much. I can't wait to see you again. 
and I'm praying it will be very soon. I'll see you soon.